Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This, to me, is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, you've probably heard the debate surrounding the term Christian nationalism. So that is the topic for today's first segment. And how do we as Christians and as hopefully a good American patriots who love our country, love our Constitution, love the Declaration and uh, love this great land that God has given us uh, contend with this term Christian nationalism and is it biblical? Well, like any debate, we have to upfront define our terms and much of the conversation surrounding Christian nationalism really deals with a vague and kind of nebulous uh, definition. A lot of people that I've talked to or I've read uh, their articles on or had conversations with Uh, they all define it differently. And that becomes very problematic because uh, just like the debate surrounding CRT and critical race theory, if we are defining that term or in our understanding, the term means one thing and the left is taking it a different way, then we can't actually have a meaningful dialogue until we say and all agree that we're talking about the same thing. And now we can then define it And whether or not we agree with it, at least we have a common definition. Um, That's one of the first principles of debate. It's also one of the first principles of of contract law as well. In fact, there's a whole host of precedent uh, in contract law and and a case um, specifically that (laughs) was an American contractor with a German uh, contractor, and they were discussing uh, contracting the purchase of chickens. And apparently between the translation to English to German and back in this dialogue, Uh, Apparently, there were two very, very different definitions of chicken, and there was no meeting of the minds. And so this contract, um, according to the court then, wasn't really a contract because uh, we were talking about two totally different things, both of those parties. So it's always very important to ask the question up front, what do you mean by that? Define that term and not just presume that you're talking about the same thing. And so uh, there there was a thread on Twitter um, that that I think has has kind of uh, blown up a little bit in the context of a Stephen Wolf's book, which I'm uh, trudgingly getting through, and I think is uh, for me personally, it's a little bit clunky, and I don't think that he defines Christian nationalism well. And at least from my understanding of his argument so far, I would reject that as a as a valid premise for our social society. But um, another uh, person on Twitter, um, his name is Neil Shenvey, um, who purports to be a Christian. I don't know uh, him personally, but it's kind of gotten into this thread. Um, He tweets that it's fair for Christian nationalists to use bite the bullet cases like Drag Queen Story Hour to argue that classical liberalism has problems. But they should admit that there are also bite the bullet cases for Christian nationalism, like let's make Hindu temples illegal. One of the appeals of Christian nationalism is that it purports to offer consistent first principles approach to politics. But you can't articulate limiting principles, or if you can't, rather, if you can't articulate limiting principles, then you're in the same boat as classical liberalism, which is having the exact same problem. 
So, uh, so a few things to to this thread. I think he wisely points out that uh, you have to first define your terms, which actually he doesn't define. Um, he just presumes that all Christian nationalists or people who would subscribe to a theory of Christian nationalism are using the same philosophy. But he also, um, so he doesn't offer his own definition that at least that I've seen, and certainly not in this thread. But he talks about one of um, the appeals of Christian nationalism is that it purports to offer a consistent first principles approach, which um, for everyone, at least that I've seen under this banner, have suggested that uh, that this is a first principle sort of approach. So we at least all have that in common. But then he says, if you can't articulate a limiting principle, basically um, in law, a limiting principle would uh, suggests that you are you are bright line defining uh, where are the boundaries here, and so where does, for example, the the Supreme Court have jurisdiction? Where does it not? What it what is the limiting principle? Um, then, if you don't articulate that, then you're kind of leaving this open to um, harnessing immeasurable power. So I would suggest, and where I have been an advocate of Christian nationalism as a term is to suggest that we do have a couple of things that we can and should all agree on from a biblical perspective and, uh, a, and a biblical point of view. Um, and But we do really need to fully define our terms and to make sure that we are all agreeing on these premises. So my view of Christian nationalism is that we would agree, first, that God ordained and established nations. We see that very clearly in scripture that God says that he has ordained nations. Um, he chose the nation of Israel. Sovereignty matters. Borders matter. Second, that nations have sovereignty and borders. You can't define what a nation is without boundaries. That's true for the definition of any object or any um, any type of description. You always have to define the boundary of, of where the the definition is and so for example if i'm trying to articulate the the boundaries and you know the the meets and bounds of my coffee cup that's here on my table i would say okay what is coffee cup and what is not coffee cup and drawing those boundaries then identifies and draws lines around the image of a coffee cup and so our language when we define and have a have measures and metrics then we can articulate what is something and what is not something. And this is, of course, a a larger conversation that the leftists are trying to tear down all types of meaningful definitions and boundaries um, in gender ideology, in queer theory, in, uh, in humanity, and the spectrum, as they call it, of sexuality, because they want to Um, to take away individual personhood. They don't want individuals to have boundaries, to have ultimately identity. And so if you don't have a human identity and you don't have uh, human sexuality and humanity is just a spectrum, you don't have a concrete definition of what it means to be an individual. And so then individuals no longer have rights and we get into this whole collective mentality that we are just all part of the greater good and human beings don't have any intrinsic value and and so on and so forth. So, um, so we have to define nations as sovereign and having borders so that we can particularly describe this is America, 
the rest is not outside of that. So we have, um, of course, in the biblical worldview, we have truth versus not truth. Then a third, God ordained civil society to promote good and restrain evil. This comes, of course, from Micah 6, 8. And we allow the church and family governments um, under his authority to prosper and to freely exercise our individual rights. We understand that God is the one who gave us our rights and they are endowed in us by by virtue of our humanity. Um, they are not, our rights are not state given. They are not mere privileges that the government can arbitrarily redefine or abridge at whim. So God ordained civil society to promote good and restrain evil and the terms good and evil have measurable differences. And four, a nation that best fulfills its mandate from God to operate according to uh, the, the three above principles will be Christian in principle like what America was founded to be. So um, that is in 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 just a, a broad perspective, um, the starting place, I think, of how we should define Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism, though, is not is not dominion theology or compelled Christianity. And that's where I think we get some of these suggestions that Christian nationalism um, and the advocates and proponents of a Christian nation are attempting to compel belief in Christ or participation in the Christian religion and that's a straw man argument because no one serious who is supporting the idea of Christian nationalism and defining it properly would ever suggest that we should have compulsory religion in this country. Um, not only do we have the First Amendment, but that was if we go back in American history and world history, we know that the founders specifically came to this country historically in the pilgrims for religious freedom and for the separation of authority and jurisdiction between the church and the state that was not in England. And when you see uh, British history and the Church of England and papal authority and the problems between um, the, the crown having all authority, um, no separation of powers, even within the context of civil government, but then having um, either the church dictate to the state or the state control the church and having them intertwined, that separation of powers was very important to the founders. And that's how we get our expression of religious freedom that was enumerated in the First Amendment. Uh, but for people who would like to immediately shoot down this idea of Christian nationalism, they think that what we are talking about is compulsory Christianity. And so when um, when this gentleman, Neil Shenvey, talks about articulating a limiting principle, my response to that would be that our limiting principle is enumerated in the First Amendment. We have free exercise of religion. And this doesn't just mean Orthodox Christianity, the most misunderstood principle of a Christian nation, is that God himself does not compel belief or worship. So neither can the state, but neither can the state prohibit worship either. And so a Christian or a nation is founded on Christian principles uh, that would require only internally consistent structure and requires limited government for the purpose of protecting God-given rights, not state-given privileges. So without God, 
we can't objectively define individual rights. And this is why the postmodern post-truth society wants to excise God, because then we can reimagine or recreate and redefine what our rights mean, because they're only in the context of however we want to define them. But a Christian nation and a nation founded on Christian principles is the only internally consistent structure that requires limited government and understands we have to first define our relationship with God and through God's authority, that defines the scope of what human rights and that definition of human rights actually means. So a Christian nation requires that the state is limited in power in, uh, to protecting an individual's right to discover truth, answer for themselves what they believe about God, where and how and if they worship, how they raise their children. Free exercise without state interference. And so what's the limiting principle of a society that's not founded on God-given objective moral truth? That's really the question because there's this weird presumption that a Christian nation won't protect any other viewpoints other than what the church would say is, um, is the orthodox Christian theological perspective. But what's the limiting principle of a society that's not founded on God-given moral truth? Literally nothing more than the arbitrary whim of the consensus of those in power. So to go back to uh, this guy Neil's original contention, you know, so what's to stop a Christian nation from just making Hindu temples illegal? Well, I would fear the outlawing of Hindu temples in a secular society much more than in a Christian nation, because a Christian nation recognizes that we all have the inherent God-given right to pursue and discover truth and to understand for ourselves how, when and if to, to answer life's most basic questions, is there a God? Who is God? Do we accept the truth of the gospel of Christ? Who are we as human beings? Where are we going for eternity? What is the purpose of life? All of these basic questions have to be answered by the individual, not compelled by the government. And so a Christian nation does not use the power of the state with regard to religion, but the freedom of the pulpit. So a Christian nation, if we are advocating for this premise, is to say that our rights can only be defined objectively when we recognize there is a God that endowed us with our rights. And apart from that, if you don't want a Christian nation and you want to establish a secular society, well, good luck with that. That is the arbitrary whim of the dominant power will then foreclose, reimagine, and reinvent your rights at the, at the whim of the government that's in authority. So this is a broader conversation. I hope we've uh, talked about this at least a little bit to establish that we have to have definitions, but we also have to advocate for the truth of the definitions of our rights that are God-given. We'll be right back with more on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. And 
welcome back on this great Friday morning, and I'm so pleased to welcome my next guest who is known as Raw Egg Nationalist. If you haven't heard of him yet, you really need to follow him on social media and get his book uh, called The Eggs Benedict Option. So I've had the pleasure of uh, interviewing Raw Egg Nationalist on my podcast. You can find that at thejennaellisshow.com on a variety of subjects, but um, for those of, of, of us who uh, maybe aren't familiar with your work, uh, Raw Egg Nationalist, um, talk to us about why you are still an Anon and what the purpose of your mission in uh, in really bringing to light a lot of these challenges about um, our food supply and contamination and, and all of these things that you talk about in your book, uh, why this has become uh, your mission. Uh, well, thanks for having me again, Jenna. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Um, so why am I uh, still anonymous? Well, I'm anonymous really just because it's actually it's actually quite dangerous to express certain opinions uh, publicly these days. And uh, you know, if, if you're on the left, you can say just about anything you please and get away with it. But if you're perceived to be on the right, uh, if you're perceived to be a conservative or a traditionalist, then um, then there are all sorts of risks if you express opinions that actually maybe even 10 or 15, 20 years ago were were fairly mainstream and and uh, you know not, not considered particularly particularly extreme. Now they're considered uh, beyond the pale, and and uh, you're subject to all sorts of threats to your personal livelihood and even to your to your physical safety. So that's the main reason why I'm anonymous. But um, my mission really is to is to educate people about the extent to which the extent to which the food supply has been contaminated, the extent to which we are exposed to incredibly harmful chemicals that, uh, among other things, make us fat, that alter our hormone levels and uh, wreck our fertility. Uh, if you're a man, if you have low testosterone, you're going to have depression, uh, you're going to be overweight, uh, you might not be able to have children. And this is this is a this is a growing problem. This is something that everybody, I think, needs to sit up and take notice of. Uh, and you have people like Tucker Carlson in the mainstream with his uh, with his recent documentary, which I featured in the End of Men, trying to bring these issues in, bring these issues to a to a popular audience. But but it's hard. It's uh, it's an uphill battle, and uh, we need as many people as possible, really, to be to be trying to advance this. Uh, to be trying to advance this agenda. And and that is um, so incredibly important, and I think it's amazing that Tucker Carlson is uh, is highlighting a lot of these issues because, you know, we have seen for years uh, people who have been concerned about GMOs in our food and you know, the, the genetically modified uh, food supply and some concerns about uh, buying GMO versus organic. And so in your research and discovery, um, what's what's the truth behind that and what should we be concerned about? Oh, I think I think that people are definitely onto something with GMOs. I think that uh, that we really don't actually we're actually meddling with forces we don't fully understand. And the thing is, uh, we don't have long term we don't have long term studies on GMOs. We don't have the sort of uh, the sort of data that I think we would really need in order to be able to say actually these foods are safe. Actually, it's okay to eat GMO corn. 
to have GMO corn as a staple part of your diet. Uh, we just don't have that sort of data. So GMO is definitely is definitely that something that people ought to ought to be aware of and that they should really be avoiding. But there are all sorts of other things as well. Um, I mean, I mean, one of the main focuses of the Tucker documentary is chemicals like PFAS. Those are perfluoroalkyl substances. Uh, they're used in a whole variety of different uh, different applications: fire retardants, greaseproof paper, things like that, plastics, and uh, they're in everything. And we already know that they have a host of of terrible effects. They're obesogens. They make us put on weight, basically. And they do that. This is quite interesting. They, they do that by making our body use fewer calories, basically. So you can actually put on weight without eating more food because your body's metabolic needs decrease. Um, they also have gender-bending effects. Uh, they, they feminize men and they, they interfere with women's hormones. Uh, there are other chemicals like BPA, phthalates, which also have gender bending and obesogenic effects. Uh, the, the sad truth is that our that our environment, our food supply, the water, even the air is is increasingly contaminated with a an in, a very very toxic chemical freight. And uh, it, this is a new issue for a lot of people. Most people just don't know anything about this, but they really do need to know something about it because. It's something that actually could, well, scientists are actually predicting that perhaps humans might not be able to reproduce by natural means within the next 30 years. If you extrapolate current trends in fertility in male and female fertility, then there's a, there's a distinct possibility that actually within the next couple of decades, it's going to be very, very difficult for anybody to conceive naturally. This is just horrifying, honestly. And and the question, of course, then becomes, is this intentional? Is this just a, a side effect of uh, of why, you know, these companies are genetically modifying because then they their outward expression is saying, well, this is helpful to have more food available and, you know, all of those other reasons that they give. So is this just an unintended side effect or is this intentionally trying uh, to damage human reproduction and also um, our body's uh, natural hormone cycles and all of these things? It's a difficult question because you absolutely can't you absolutely can't ignore the fact that for a hundred years, maybe even more than a hundred years now, some of the most most powerful, uh, well-connected people in the world have argued for population reduction, massive population reduction. And uh, what they, what many of them have also said is that the food supply and the water ought to be uh, tainted in various different ways. Should have sterilants added to it in order to uh, in order to achieve that goal so there is it's impossible to think about these issues without considering the background of very powerful influential people who seem to want to uh to decrease fertility and to decrease the world's population significantly the thing about a lot of these chemicals though i think is that they are their 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 gender bending effects in particular i think are a byproduct uh i don't know that they I don't know that they've been used intentionally other than uh, for the explicit purpose, i.e., for instance, making plastics um, uh, flexible, which is what a lot of these chemicals like BPA and phthalates do. Um, 
I think that the, the the they just have terrible side effects. And unfortunately, when it comes to dangerous chemicals or to any chemicals for that matter, to food additives uh, and medicines, then we have a we have a very very lax attitude. the The basic attitude that we take with with chemicals is they're safe until proven otherwise. And that's very, very dangerous because really what we're doing is we're making guinea pigs of all of the people who, and that's most of the world's population, who are exposed to these chemicals. What we really ought to be saying is, hold on, we should consider any new chemical to be harmful until proven otherwise. We need to know that it's safe before we let anybody you know, be, be exposed to it. But, but that isn't what we do. We do the opposite. And so what we've actually managed to do in a very short period of time, you have to realize, for instance, that uh, PFAS, which, uh, as I said earlier, is one of the principal chemicals that Tucker Carlson uh, focuses on in the, the End of Men documentary, PFAS have only been around since the 1940s. Uh, that's not a long time, you know, it's 82 years, 80 years. Uh, and yet uh, they've had the most appalling, these chemicals have had the most appalling effects on uh, human and animal life. So it doesn't take, it hasn't taken us actually that long to create a, a completely toxic environment. Wow. And and it, it really is just shocking that uh, these types of chemicals, as you said, are presumptively okay, rather than uh, waiting to see, okay, are there any side effects? Are there any uh, you know, issues that affect human beings? And I'm talking uh, with Raw Egg Nationalist and, of course, the author of uh, The Eggs Benedict Option, which is an excellent book that anyone concerned about the food supply and these types of topics um, and also the remedies and what you can do uh, absolutely should get. And you know, this, this goes then into, of course, the questions about vaccines, because um, the so-called COVID vaccine, I don't particularly think it's it's a vaccine with everything that's come out in the last couple of years. Um, but that was the same way that the government has treated some of these experimental medications as well to say, well, we are just going to presume that there are no side effects. And sure, in, in our limited you know, two-week data, then it's not showing any side effects. But now that we are months and years after the fact, we're starting to see uh, some of these things uh, cataloged. And um, so how does this affect also medication that uh, we just assume is, is prescribed for our health, but with an overabundant pharmaceutical industry? Yes, I mean it's 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 so incredibly reckless. It's it's reckless, bordering on criminal. In fact, I think it probably is criminal in many cases, uh, as we've seen with people like uh, I think it's the Sackler family and OxyContin. I mean, there's pe- people very naively think that the medical industry and that the people who who produce the food, the food industry, that they're, that they're sort of benevolent people and that we can rely on them to have our best interests at heart and it simply isn't the case i mean we find we find for instance there was a there was a recent study on antidepressants which showed that actually antidepressants in the long term make no measurable or have no measurable measurable benefit to uh the lives of people who take them so people people who take antidepressants would probably be better off exercising and cleaning up their diet rather than rather than uh rather than taking pills and yet that is as a society that is now our sort of default mode when it comes to any sort of um any sort of abnormality any any kind of illness or perceived illness is to get people to take pills and there's a new uh anti-obesity drug that's just come out whose name uh 
whose name escapes me at the moment, but uh, already people on TikTok are uh, making videos about the side effects of this new supposed wonder drug. It's uh, it's uh, not everything that that sparkles is gold. People are finding out, but they keep they keep learning this again and again. It it it's it's difficult to it's difficult to know really what it's going to take for people's attitudes to change, for people to to wake up and to think actually maybe it would be better if we if we didn't always have recourse to pills and medicine to sort out our problems, maybe, maybe there's a different way that we could do this because our ancestors didn't do it. Our ancestors didn't have pills and they had to cope with, well, I mean, I, most, most of us uh, don't even really know that we're born by comparison with the uh, travails that our ancestors faced. Right. And, you know, and, and that's such a great, um, highlight to say that we do have an overabundance of medication. We think that any sort of symptoms just need to be masked by more and more medication. And certainly, um, you know, I would be the first to say there are are definitely advancements in uh, medical technology and the medical industry and the whole healthcare industry that are good. I mean, we are living longer than our ancestors passed and, um, and more of a, uh, of an urban environment in some ways has been beneficial, but the flip side of that is that we are taking so much medication that we're not even getting to the root of the problem and we're not doing it in a genuinely health-based way. It, it almost seems like um, if we suffer anything whatsoever, then we pop a pill. And some of these things, there was even a, an uh, article in The Guardian um, just a couple days ago that said that antidepressants can cause emotional blunting. And um, you know, this is just one study out of many that shows how many um, side effects that you end up coping with based on the medication you're taking. And then you take more medication to cover those side effects. And then it's this kind of cyclical effect that now you're taking, you know, 10 or 12 prescriptions to combat one thing instead of potentially doing it more holistically. And, um, certainly with emotional issues, um, you know, there, there are a lot of, um, other people that would suggest in more of a a pastoral and Christian counseling vein to say that we need to deal with heart problems from a truth-based remedy rather than than medication. Um, But when we're talking about the, the food supply and we're talking about, you know, as much as we are able to, uh, get rid of a lot of these, um, these carcinogens and other things in our lives. Of course, we can't do it completely. But um, but raw egg nationalists, what what types of things would you suggest and, and some steps that people can take to at least reduce their intake in, in just the last couple of minutes I have with you today? Well, yes, it's, it's, that's an important point that you made. You can't, unfortunately, totally reduce uh, your exposure to these chemicals. They are everywhere. Microplastics, uh, which are microscopic pieces of plastic, um, uh, which are formed by uh, weather action on pieces of plastic in the ocean um, uh, and sunlight, um, have been found everywhere. They've been found at the bottom of the ocean, Antarctica, in the Alps. They circulate in the air. I think I think there was one study that suggested that 11% of all dust now is plastic, and these pieces of plastic are uh, vectors for harmful chemicals like BPA and phthalates. So uh, one simple thing you can do is to filter your water. Another thing is to reduce your reliance on plastic, reduce your reliance on uh, chemical personal care products, uh, and buy organic food. That would be another thing that I would say. 
Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you so much to Raw Egg Nationalist. You can find him at rawegnationalist.com, and he is the number one best-selling author of The Eggs Benedict eggs benedict option that is available and you can also check out uh, the new man's world annual that is out now and uh, that's a great uh, aggregation of some articles uh, that he loves it's a great uh, kind of men's uh, magazine and so go to everything there at rawegnationalist.com we'll be right back with more on jenna ellis in the morning Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning. And I always want to bring in uh, guests who have topics that are uh, not covered in mainstream media. And generally, that's purposefully that the mainstream media, especially uh, here in America, are so focused just on uh, what's going on in Washington and the top trending headlines, which, of course, we need to pay attention to. But we also need to have a more global perspective, literally, of what's going on in the rest of the world. And uh, when we are talking about our border crisis, when we're talking about our immigration crisis, when we're talking about our issues that we're dealing with here in America with freedom of speech, well, that is actually mirroring exactly what's going on in Ireland. And so I'm very pleased to have uh, today the president of the Irish Freedom Party joining me, Herman Kelly. And um And Herman, we had a a great conversation on uh, my podcast the other day. And so for people who want to watch that as well, that's at thejennaellisshow.com. But um, you were describing on that uh, interview the um, Ireland exit or IRexit, very similar to Brexit, and how Ireland is wanting to maintain your national sovereignty or reclaim it rather because it's been given over to the European Union and there have been a lot of protests over the last couple of months going on in Ireland. So what is the landscape there and why is this so critical for your freedom party, uh, the Irish Freedom Party, to make strides and headway in terms of leaving the European Union? Yes, there's been lots of protests in Ireland. Like even like it's a small country, and the the south of Ireland is a population of five million. Uh, and in one night there, a few weeks ago, there was nine protests across the country in one night, which for Ireland is huge, and especially protests about the issue of immigration, because the political elite in Ireland, uh, and we are really in bed with the media class as well. They are pro-immigration, and they've tried to silence anybody who would raise a voice about the reckless uh, uh, practice of uh, open-door immigration to the rest of Europe. Uh, to They would shout them down with by name-calling, but now people have basically had enough. Uh, name-calling doesn't work, and uh, because we have huge problems with uh, a rise in uh, sexual assault and in crime over the last five years, which has gone up uh, 45%. We've, like, one quarter, like, they bring over, like, to give an idea of the scale of immigration into Ireland, in the last 30 years, the population of Ireland, the Republic of the South of Ireland, has increased by 46%, from 3.5 to just over 5 million people. This has had huge changes in our culture, in our security, in the cost to to taxpayers that we have to pay for uh, the medical uh, and education and transport costs of all these people coming into Ireland. And uh, hey, we never we were colonised by four, before, 
by Britain. That's what we have in common with America, that uh, we both escaped from the, the, the British Empire, under, from under the British Empire. We took our freedom, and now Ireland, in order that we are able to control our border, we must leave the European Union, because only then, because at the minute, as I, as I explained, in matters of EU competence, EU law is superior to Irish law, the Irish Constitution, and the Irish Supreme Court. And that is, you may call that many things, but it's certainly not sovereignty, it's certainly not independence, and it's certainly not democratic self-determination. I'm talking with uh, Herman Kelly, who is the president of the Irish Freedom Party. And this makes so much sense that your party believes that Ireland should be like a normal democratic state and have control of its borders and actually have a citizen-led government and participation and have things like your own constitution and laws and Supreme Court should control your country. And sovereignty and borders matter. And uh, this seems like it's it's just such a, a reckless um, policy and, and, and recklessness among the the establishment elite class in Ireland that would still be for the European Union. I mean, what what is their pushback to this and saying, you know, no, it you know, is, it's it's fine that we have open borders. It's fine. We should totally just stay part of the the EU. Well, you'd be very pleased to hear in a way that we've been shouting for well, very loudly for the last two months. The hashtag. Ireland is full has been trending on Twitter for for months now, and would you believe just last week the government came out and said, "You know what? Yes, you're right. Ireland is full, and we are incapable of taking any more asylum seekers into Ireland. And so, any if any more asylum seekers do come to Ireland, they'll find themselves ho- homeless on the street because we've nowhere to put them." They finally admitted. Uh, after a situation in, in which one in four hotel beds in Ireland are full of uh, asylum seekers, that, uh, yeah, we have nowhere, nowhere to put these people. So the only, uh, only well, the sensible solution is to con- like close the borders, uh, have a controlled immigration policy uh, to deport people who are here illegally. Uh, would you believe that of all the people who come to Ireland claim an asylum, 40% of them claim that between getting on the plane, be it in Paris or, or London or wherever, to, to come to Dublin, when, after they check onto the plane, 40% of them claim that they've lost their passport between getting on the plane and arriving in Dublin at the custom chaos where they uh, claim asylum. Look, we've been lied to hand over fist uh, last year, there was 285,000 social security numbers given out, which is a tax number. Less than 23% of those went to Irish people. So it is uh, just the volume of people is too much. Ireland is a small country. Ireland is not a, uh, we don't, it's our homeland. It's not an economic hostel. Our, uh, like, it's our home, uh, which we love. We belong here. It belongs to us. Uh, it doesn't belong to uh, people from Afghanistan or Africa or wherever, Eastern Europe. Uh, we believe that we, sh- we should be, the Irish people in Ireland should be the only people who, uh, who make our laws, who decide our destiny, who, who decide our immigration policy and our budgets and uh, all this. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, but also brings up a lot of other issues as, as well, that the people who are pushing open borders, people who are 
pushing this cultural self-hatred of Ireland, I called hibernophobia, they're all infected by cultural Marxism, which is based on hatred of the nation-state, hatred of the, uh, of the nuclear family, the natural family, and uh, even hatred of the, I, like the dimorphic uh, like sex as male and female. They even want to oppose that with this gender ideology, very dangerous ideology. And there is among these globalist elite who love the EU so much in Ireland, there is a, a hatred of uh, the Christianity, the influence of Christianity on Irish culture, which is pretty uh, deep and intense and, and long. And, uh, well, we're saying, you know what, we are proud to be Irish, to be Catholic. Uh, we know where we're from, uh, this is our land, and we want to, to make the best of it for our children and um, have, a, have a safe society which is pro- prosperous. Uh, so we're definitely in conflict with uh, with the Irish uh, establishment, for sure. Yeah, and, and everything you're describing, Herman Kelly, is exactly what a patriot of a nation should be expressing. And I hope that for the people listening, this this beautiful description that you have of your love of your homeland, of the desire to have freedom and liberty and a self-governed uh, society and having a culture that is true to its roots, to have the influence of a Christian moral truth. All of these things parallel exactly what's going on in the United States when we are saying we need to also be self-governed and we were established um, in our nation to promote that. And that's what the general welfare actually means. And not everything that our Supreme Court has manipulated it to say, but these types of parallels, there is um, there is in, in biblical truth the premise and the understanding that God established nations. And so as much as we here in America are patriots and say America first, it is right that you in Ireland are saying you are patriots and it's Ireland first for you. That's the definition of what sovereignty means. And yet we're seeing this rise of not only cultural Marxism, but uh, globalism and destroying borders, destroying any definition and distinguishment between not only man versus woman, but between um, state versus state. And and this is having a remarkable consequence on the daily lives of individuals. And so, um, go ahead. Can you, can you, you can still hear me? Yes. Uh, um, yeah, just the whole thing. Yeah, to love, like love of your, uh, of your own body. Uh, love of your family, love of your nation, love of God, they're all closely related. And as far as I can see, those who uh, hate Ireland also hate their culture, hate its national democracy. They also hate Christianity. uh, And they're trying to break down, uh, say, the family and the distinction between male and female. So all these things about what you love and what you're uh, what you are willing to fight and protect and what you want to see grow uh, are all closely related. I can see, looking from afar from the States, that, yes, uh, the, uh, uh, the American people have the power which they hand over to the representatives, but the representatives are certainly not standing up to protect your borders, it's very similar as, as in Ireland. But the, the, now the consequences of an open border to the European Union are coming home to roost, and people are finding the economic cost that they simply cannot build, uh, sorry, buy a house, they cannot rent an apartment, 
because demand immigration has gone up so high, demand for housing has gone up, and therefore prices have gone up. And uh, now it's the case that many young Irish people have to emigrate to Australia and to Canada and to the States because they can't afford a house. And, uh, and in their place are coming in people from Eastern Europe, people from Africa, people from the Middle East. It's absolutely crazy. And I say that uh, the Fine Gael government uh, and Fianna Fáil government, their immigration policy is abort and import. They're in favour of abortion, which they introduced a few years ago, Very the barbaric practice of abortion a few years ago. Their policy is now abort and import. And many Americans falsely believe that Sinn Féin, an Irish party are a nationalist party because they were historically, but they've changed dramatically, and now they're an internationalist, anti-nationalist party which believes who are happy to be in a political union with the EU, are happy about open borders, and basically they're a gung-ho Marxist party which hate our culture and are happy to... Their immigration policy is Brits out, everybody else in. So they want the British out of the north of Ireland, but they're very happy for the rest of the world coming to the Republic of Ireland in the south. Myself, I'm from the north. I'm just an Irish national. Uh, I don't recognize the, uh, the border between the north and the south of, of Ireland, because I'm an Irish national who lives in the island of Ireland. But uh, the Irish Freedom Party, we're a new party, but uh, we are certainly strong in principle. We're growing, and certainly the last two months our profile has gone up very, very sharply in Ireland. So I believe that uh, success will come in the next round of uh, elections, which are in a year and a half. Yeah, and speaking of of the elections that are coming up in a year and a half, and uh, with the rise of this uh, this new Irish Freedom Party, which, as you mentioned, you know, the, the Sinn Fein Party, it sounds a lot like historically how you know we we in America would re- would view the Republican Party that has maybe historically done some good things, but has gotten so far off track, and we don't necessarily as conservatives uh, trust the Republican Party. And uh, people are talking: should we establish a new party? And you've done that in Ireland. And so what uh, do you expect from this vote and uh, what could possibly happen? What are you uh, trying to promote? Well, we will be running in the general election, the local election and the European election. It's about uh, between a year and a half and and two years away. What we're looking to promote is the self-governing Ireland where the Irish people make their own laws. I, I, I can see in America, you talked about, I think you're trying to describe to me what is a rhino. Uh, see, I, yes. I, I know the lingo too, uh, Republican name only, and I believe the, the influence of the Koch brothers, where actually when you think of it, communism and capitalism are similar, and they believe that man is just a materialist entity, and that uh, people people in Ireland, is, like they would think of it as a wet rock in the Atlantic, and people are just consumers and producers, and there's no sense of place, no sense of belonging, no sense of love to where they're from, and that, that, that fault, that materialist fault of man with no connection to where he, he, he is from is, is a problem, and, and the whole sense of, let's say, lack of rootedness in place, which is always very strong in Gaelic society, in Irish, in Irish culture, I believe is a great strength. And I believe that is the reason that people have just recently started to protest against mass immigration, because they believe, hey, this is our land. We, we belong here. This land belongs to us. 
it's given to us to protect and for our children. And uh, it just can't be anybody who wants to come land on a plane can come here and expect to be given free bed and board and uh, whatever by the and government. It's just, it's just yeah, not very, on anymore. Very well said. And, and you're so right. That, I mean, this is what the leftists um, across the globe are trying to promote, that uh, we are just as human beings part of this big collective and we have to be a collective force for good. And if our cog isn't working in the system, then we're fungible and we can be removed where the biblical worldview says that every human being is endowed by God with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, um, you know, of course, is what our declaration says. But um, that's true no matter what context and nation you apply it to. So um, Herman Kelly, you can find the Irish Freedom Party online at Ire Exit Freedom, I R E X I T Freedom. We're all out of time for Jenna Ellis in the morning. Happy Friday, and I will see you Monday.